Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, on today's show, I welcome back Dr. Zach Bush. Zach is a triple certified physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. In our last conversation, Zach and I discussed the root causes of disease, the microbiome, and the impacts of chemical farming on human health. In the wake of that episode, I received about a thousand emails with additional questions regarding the microbiome and the immune system. So in some ways, this episode serves as part two to that original conversation. But as you will hear, it is significantly more than that. Now, I'm not going to give much preamble here because this conversation is so expansive that it's impossible to encapsulate. I will just say that it goes from the very, very micro to the hyper, hyper macro. And nobody traverses that terrain like Zach. Now, as an interviewer, ethicist, and thinker, it's so unique to connect with such a dynamic mind in mid-metamorphosis. That's where I feel Zach is. And candidly, it pushes the edges of my comfort zone and propels me to consider ideas many of which I'm unprepared for. I suppose that's what learning is. Needless to say, all of my notes for this episode immediately went into the dustbin the moment we began, and we just danced. I hope you find it compelling. So without further delay, I present to you Dr. Zach Bush. Okay. My friend, Zach Bush. Jeff, good to be with you. Good to be with you, my friend. I mean, we always have these expansive conversations and um, I was fortunate enough to spend a late evening with you early in the week. Uh, and I'm still trying to process uh, all of the wisdom that you imparted in, in that conversation. So I expect nothing less than an expansive and explosive 
uh, conversation. I'm just honored to to be with you as always. Honored to be in your presence, and I've come to feel this commune spot is just a, a real holy spot. It's really uh, so valuable to be tumbled into a place of consciousness that has really bred a community of sanity, which is just so valuable. And to be able to sit around with a group of people with differing opinions and hear those out and speak through those late into the night is something that uh, humanity is craving right now. So thank you for creating this space. It's been a blessing every time I've been here. Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, as I remarked before, um, you mimic nature in so far that you are a great listener. Mm-hmm. And from listening, um, you process a whole multiplicity of ideas and perhaps just through the pressures of selection, the best ones emerge. <laughs> so uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll get into some of that today. So and we did a podcast a couple of months ago and, um, and it was the most widely listened to podcast that I've ever produced and released. And uh, in response to that podcast, as I was telling you earlier, uh, I was in receipt of 800 to 1,000 emails from people uh, asking questions specifically uh, about the microbiome and its relationship to immunity, um, to chronic disease, and, and then many people asked specifically about the microbiome and its relationship to a COVID or aggressive COVID. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm excited to excavate some of that with you, but I also want to... Um, put that in a broader, bigger context, because uh, um, it would be a perversion of an opportunity not to go from micro to macro <laughs> with, with you, since you are the, the ultimate artist in that respect. So I'll just set it up this way. Um, you know, we are at a tipping point. And, um, and I think every generation it feels an inflection point. Like my grandparents, um, you know, talked to me about the depression and about World War II. And, you know, my parents certainly were, um, they were young in their early 20s um, during the Bay of Pigs and the Cold War, where we were just sort of a blink away from mutually assured destruction. (laughs) Um, So I don't want to be too sanctimonious about the moment that we're in right now. At the same time, it does feel different because in a way it's like it's systemic mm-hmm. and um and we're experiencing interconnected um types of disease i would say um certainly human disease um manifested by chronic disease heart disease cancer diabetes alzheimer's um autoimmune diseases crohn's ibs rheumatoid arthritis, on and on and on, um, mental illness. Um, but then we see a mirror there in planetary disease, um, spurred on by global warming, but not necessarily only concomitant with that. I mean, we've seen soil degradation, degradation of our forests, um, of our oceans. And then Aperture opens even one step farther. We see this spiritual social disease which you so eloquently discuss um where we've seen now just unacceptable levels of income inequality um sort of a growing sort of monopolization of and centralization of power in 
certain corporations that seem to have kind of a disproportionate amount of control over people's lives. And that spurred on a lot of um, distrust, uh, erosion of social cohesion, um, loneliness, kind of feelings of atomization. So as a functional medicine doctor or more, I want to kind of, I'd love for you to examine the root causes of what I think of as kind of dysbiosis, degeneration, and disconnection. And, um, and you can pull any thread that you want uh, there. But at some point, as a general organizational principle, I'd love to start in the very micro, um, in the galaxy of bacteria, of the things that we can't see, uh, because no one paints that, that portrait more beautifully than, than you do. Um, and then zoom out to the macro as we go. Beautiful. Uh, and in regard to functional medicine, just my hats off to Mark and all Mark Hyman and all the others that pioneered that. And I haven't paid any of them for any fellowships, uh, so I'm not actually functional <laughs> medicine doctor. So, yeah, sorry, um, doctor. But integrative doctor is maybe a, a general enough term that no, I don't get in trouble with anybody. But um, integrative, you know, medicine was my viewpoint into the questions you ask um, in allopathic medicine. I got my MD at the University of Colorado, and then. Went out to the University of Virginia with a real excitement about uh, their uh, endocrine department there. Endocrinology came on my viewpoint as a medical student as kind of this coordinator of the symphony of of the organ systems. You know, this symphonic tuning of, of all of this complex ecosystem of liver cells and kidney cells and brain cells. And how, how does all that turn into a sentient body with a single mission of life, you know, and a single mission of survival and regeneration and, and productivity and reproductivity. What, what is that? And, you know, studying cardiology was fascinating. Studying renal was fascinating. Pulmonology, all these fields of medicine were fascinating to me. I actually loved every one of them and really excelled in each of them once I was into my clinical phase of education. But I kept, you know, stumbling into that reality of like, I can't spend the rest of my career looking at end-stage heart disease. Like, how did they get heart disease was a much more interesting question. And this was, you know, late 1990s, early 2000s, when I was going through those questions in my mind as to what, what I wanted to end up throwing my life career into. And it was a very wonderful time to be alive because I had been promised in medical school that uh, we would decode the human genome and... I would be the very, very first generation of physicians that would be able to swab the cheek of a patient and run their genome and tell them exactly what diseases they would get over their lifetime and exactly what drugs would treat those diseases for them. And so we called that personalized medicine. So there's a, it was literally my first day of medical school. Dean comes in, congratulations, you're the first generation of personalized medicine doctors. You're going to have all of this power behind you of knowledge and data. And you know, you're know you going to know the fabric of your patient. 1996, this this whole message comes out. And so I'm steeped in this heady concept of like, oh my God, I'm gonna know everything and I'm gonna have a godlike capacity to prevent disease, treat disease, you know, pr even predict disease, you know, all of this was gonna happen. 1996, we didn't see, foresee what was gonna, gonna happen in the next year or two, which was that we were gonna come stumbling into the reality that we had a fraction of the genetic code that we thought we did. And we probably talked about that some on our first podcast together, I don't recall, but you know, we only had 20,000 genes. 
which was such a surprise because we'd been told but since Watson and Crick that, you know, 400,000 genes have to come from 400,000, or I'm sorry, 400,000 different proteins that make up a human body must origin from 400,000 genes because we had been told one gene becomes an RNA, gets translated into a protein. This was the whole genetic model we've been handed. And it was Bible. You know, this was 50 years proven. This was gospel here. And so suddenly they finished decoding the human genome, 1996, 97, 98, four different teams. And they all concluded that we only had 25,000 genes. And our technology was really pretty crappy at the time, but it was enough to, to get us in the ballpark. Now with our technology 25 years later, we, we know we're only, we're only like 19,600 genes. So barely 20,000 genes was somehow making 400,000 different proteins actively in the human body. And so we, we suddenly realized and didn't want to tell anybody that we'd been completely wrong about the genetic you know, sequence that you'd inherit from mom and dad. Obviously, that's not what determines who you become today. And this is the revolution we've now entered into kind of 2010 to current. Uh, this last decade was really termed the decade of the microbiome, which is where your question starts. And the revolution that is afoot here scientifically is among the biggest paradigm shifting revolutions we've had since the origin of science. You could date back to, you know, Pythagoras and all of this in the ancient Greeks when they found out the earth was... Uh, you know, round, you know, and that was such a disruptive thought 2000 years ago that it challenged religion and it challenged, you know, so, so yeah, our concept of ground, you know, how are we staying on the planet? It's impossible. We'd fall right off the bottom if it was round. Of course, it's a flat table. Um, and so we, we didn't conceive of how that's possible. Now, of course, 2000 years later, we have a very adamant, you know, attempt at scientific description of a flat earth still. And so it's taken 2000 years to wrap your, our head collectively around the idea that we have a spherical planet. And then, you know, just, you know, wait 1600 years until something would disrupt us as big. And 1600 years later, uh, with Galileo and all of them at the beginning of the 1600s with the invention of the telescope, we suddenly are swirling in this galaxy and, and we're, the sun is not spinning around us. We're spinning around the sun and galaxies out there and there's solar systems out there. There's galaxies out there beyond our galaxy. Like suddenly we were just like this pixel in this giant universe and talk about challenging our spiritual worldview yes. you know, for a narcissistic humanity. Yeah. Humility. <laughs> humility. <laughs> it's you on the head. Yeah. And so, well, wait, what if we're a speck in a huge universe? And yeah. then, of course, you know, well, does that mean that there's other intelligent life on the planet or in the universe and all of this? And so that tumbling last 400 years has been very disruptive that we still can't handle. You know, you talk to most people and, and you're going to end up with a very polarizing opinion as to whether there's intelligent and sentient life out in the universe. So 400 years later, we're still grappling with the very earliest questions of what this would look like. And now here we come along and we find out the biggest disruptive thing in the world is, guess what? The human, human life is not actually centered at the human cell. Yeah. The human cell is not at the center of human health. How is this possible? And this was the revolution of the microbiome is to find out that those 400,000 proteins are actually coming from our genome through the intelligent instruction of these microbes within us, the bacteria, the fungi, the yeast, the protozoa, the parasites, this giant kingdom of information is interacting with our genome to manipulate each of those genetic sequences that are a gene 
such that they might make 200 different proteins out of that one template. That seemed impossible and still does to most physicians, such that we still kind of have this high conviction that our genetics really determine disease, right? Right. And no matter how many times we say, well, you know, it's not really genetic because we know it can be changed, we still are stuck in this gene model of disease. And that's where the microbiome revolution has been really profound to say that the communication back towards the human genes that you inherited from mom and dad are are basically a milieu of information that's put out in a number of different fashions or or communication streams. One is genetic. And so this is where the virome comes in. You know, all these viruses are communicating back to us all of the time and we're communicating that out. So I'm, you know, over this hour and a half, I'm going to actually genetically engineer you to be more like me. And what's going to happen is I'm going to send you signals as to which genes I'm turning on and what proteins I'm going to make out of those genes so that you become more like me. Because I'm probably experiencing things in my body after driving up winding curves and Topanga and everything else that I sensed problems. And my body is now preparing adaptation and opportunities for healing and you know balance with this the viruses I breathed in on the car on the way up here the viruses that came through my skin and through my breath as I walked up the woods to this little building up in the the mountains here. And so I'm translating all of that back to you through my virome, which is often called exosomes and things like this, but it's the same thing. So you had these genetic sequence of information flowing back and forth that's shaping each other. We also have this endocrine response happening right now. And when I look into your eyes or any other human for just a few minutes, our, our tendency is just get teared up because we start to see the beauty of another human being. And that has something to do with this dance between light energy that I'm emitting through my eyes and through my spirit and through my, my whole being and its effect on your neurosensory system. You're sensing the, the light within me when we look into each other's face and when we really see the life that has been lived, the smiles that have been had, that have created the wrinkles on our face. This is what what's coming through on this incredible neuroendocrine sensing organ that I am. And so I'm, I'm receiving this. Then there's, the, you know, this whole other system that the bacteria and fungi set into motion, which is called redox chemistry. And redox is literally the wireless communication network down within the body. So once your light energy hits me as I'm staring at your face, that comes in, starts to interface with my neuroendocrine system, and then the microbes within me have set up a a liquid circuit board that connects all of my cellular systems such that it can radiate out information just like this the circuit board on your computer can translate transmission energy and information all over the board and so suffice it to say i am genetically neuroendocrine and at redox level communicating with you hmm. and so when we think about the word commune yeah. It is the root of communication. It is the root of community. It is the it is this coming together of all things. And nothing can happen at that cellular level within me if it's not based in the complexity of the microbiome's genomics, neuroendocrine, and ultimately redox chemistry. And so all three levels are mostly coming from the microbiome. Yeah. And this <clears throat> so challenges our understanding of ourselves as distinct and separate individuals. And um, <clears throat> I wouldn't suggest that we move in together, but if we did, and that would be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> Nobody would ever sleep. <laughs> arguing philosophy all night long. But you and I would share a lot more genomics than I share with my parents. 
Yeah. And, uh, and that's very um, disconcerting, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but it's actually quite a beautiful realization. Mm-hmm. And it is the realization behind all other realizations, really. Not to go out wide too far too quickly, but this notion of mutual interdependence. And, um, and of course, this is part of my spiritual path as a burgeoning, fledgling Buddhist. Um, as part of the Eightfold Noble Path. So the first part of that path is, to, is what they call right understanding, which is the recognition of the non-self, really, of the recognition... Um, yeah, this sounds glib that we're all connected by something greater than ourselves, but that even at a very physical, biological level, that is true. Um, and I think it's the unveiling constantly of the non-self, which is eventually in Buddhism, nirvana. Um, but even in the realm of biological health, it is efflorescence, it's thriving, because what I want in my gut and on my skin and in my hair and in my mouth is a biodiversity or is a plethora of diverse fungi and bacteria and archaea and all these other kinds of things that I have a vague understanding of, um, but that end up governing and mediating so many of the systems that make my body function. From a systemic perspective, um, what is our microbiome mediating um, within our own dysfunctionality? Yeah. This happened to me in 2012. So, and I left the university with all my chemotherapy research and all that stuff in 2010, 11, and um, started a um, basically a, a, a clinical research center that I called a clinic. <laughs> and so I was so enamored with this new discovery that we could heal. I had never been taught that 17 years of academia, a couple of subspecialties, blah, blah, blah. Nobody had ever mentioned healing. And so I got really enamored when I read this book uh, from Neil Barnard, you know, the pro- program for reversing diabetes, you know, and so it basically uses a plant-based diet to reverse type two diabetes. I went to the third best training program in the world for endocrinology. Diabetes was my specialty. When I got read this book after my fellowship, I couldn't believe that I had not been told that this disease could be reversed in a matter of months with food. I was like, this is ludicrous. This guy can't be right. Read the book twice. I was like, man, he's, I think he's right. And so I started doing it in my clinic at UVA initially and then ultimately left and, and started this center for reversing chronic disease with food. And so by 2012, I've been doing this for two years and it wasn't working in all of my patients. In fact, this health food approach where I was giving tons of kale and, you know, every cruciferous vegetable I could think I was, you know, by the pound, you know, giving, making my patients switch from Twinkies and Dr. Pepper over to kale smoothies. I was in, set this clinic up in the middle of Virginia, one of the most impoverished communities, total food desert. Most people ate out of the gas stations because there was only one or two you know, grocery stores and driving distance. And so 
you've got this ludicrous, you know, toxicity that you're transitioning to kale. And to watch a third of my patients actually getting worse just boggled my mind. I was like, how could kale actually be bad for somebody? <laughs> yeah. And what became clear is that they were so leaky at the gut level that everything they put in their mouth was a threat to their immune system. Right. They were a leaky sieve. And this was a period of time, 2010 to 12, where we were having a revolution in genomics, where we're starting to realize that the genetics of the gut, the microbiome therein, was starting to be able to predict disease. If you're missing these bacteria, you'll get breast cancer. If you're missing these bacteria, you're gonna get colon cancer. If you get these, uh, missing these ones, you're gonna get type two diabetes. So we're starting to be able to link all chronic disease back to some initial pathology or imbalance within this gut ecosystem. And I remember sitting around my chemotherapy lab at our weekly lab meetings, literally laughing about some of those initial studies that were coming out from UCLA. And you know, we were at the Ivy League on the East Coast and these crazy hippie West Coast doctors thought that your shit was somehow gonna change your little propensity towards breast cancer. Like what's the likelihood? Because it didn't fit at all in our current matrix of how breast cancer occurred. We thought it was a genetic injury and it was blah, blah, blah. And we were stuck in this gene story and we had no concept. By 2014, we, we now know that the entire breast is this organic garden of bacteria and yeast and fungi. We used to think that the whole body was sterile, but to find out that the, the healthy human breast has an organic garden of organisms that has a very predictable healthy pattern, that when it turns out that cancer occurs, that whole garden has been disrupted and there's a totally different bacteria that becomes the predominant thing. So we are in this revolution 2010 to 2012 that bacteria equal disease, but nobody had put those the, the pathophysiology together. Like how, what is the causality between those two correlations? And that's what our lab accidentally uncovered in, in 2012. And so we were studying soil that, um, was growing the cruciferous vegetables that were making my patients sick, right? And so I'm like, how does inflammation go up when I give somebody kale? Because I was reading Neil Barnard and, you know, Gabe Merkin, all these guys all the way back into the 70s that had proven that it reduced inflammation to give somebody cruciferous vegetables. So now suddenly, how in 2010 is it causing inflammation? And I knew nothing about anything that I know now in regard to farming industry. So I was just kind of blatantly looking in there and just like, is there minerals? Maybe we're missing the nutrients. Maybe we're missing the medicine within the kale, you know, because Hippocrates said, let our food be our medicine. So I was looking for something missing. And what we ended up finding was in the soil, this large crystallography that had been done back in the 1970s of, of carbon particulate in the soil. And I flipped a page on this huge 96 page white paper and, and that crystallography of this molecule looked a lot like the chemotherapy I used to work on that was doing redox chemistry in mitochondria to kill cancer. And the idea that there could be medicine in soil was just mind boggling to me. And it just was very disruptive. It took a couple of weeks uh, for me and our, my colleagues to sort out that those were being produced by bacteria and fungi. So this was the sudden answer that kind of closed the gap between those two worlds of like, oh my gosh, you start lacking bacteria, lack biodiversity, you're going to start to lose this critical language of the microbes, this redox chemistry of the microbes, this wireless communication starts to go down. And as soon as you lose communication from cell to cell, you get isolation. Let me repeat that. I want everybody to hear that and think on this micro to macro thing, because we'll keep coming back to this theme. When you lose communication, one cell doesn't know what the other one's doing. You get isolation, you immediately get entropy, chaos. 
disease. And so the meta disease of humanity is isolation. Yeah. I mean, it speaks a bit to the second law of thermodynamics, right? It's the one. Yeah. Closed systems will eventually devolve in entropy they, they into chaos. Um, so I want to ground it, this discussion for a moment in, in folks that don't necessarily have like a um, great fluency with the microbiome. And I put myself into that, into that category because I'm just a podcaster. I'm not a scientist or a doctor. But I understand that there is this plethora of bacteria in my gut and fungi and, and other microbes, and that they govern different systems within me. My, they create serotonin, for example, certain lactobacillus bacteria or bifidobacteria, I think it is, or um, they can um, mitigate or, or not mitigate, but mediate my digestion and my, my digestive system. When I actually eat food, my bacteria is actually eating and digesting that itself. And there's good bacteria. And I mean, I, I don't want to categorize good and bad because all of a sudden you start to overlay judgments on there. But there's, there's bacteria that that contribute to bodily thriving, let's say. And if you feed that bacteria uh, fiber, let's say, or um, food that it it reacts positively with, it'll produce uh, as a byproduct um, things like uh, short chain fatty acids and um, and even T cell immunity regulatory cells and uh, that bolster your immune system. So it is absolutely essential that we feed the these microbes in our gut the f nutrient rich organic food um, such that it can properly run this bodily system. And when we don't do that, we start to see a bunch of different detrimental impacts. One of being leakiness, as you say, intestinal permeability. And there's a whole variety of different inputs from antibiotics to NSAIDs and glyphosate and all this stuff, and we can talk about what some of those are that help to contribute to this intestinal permeability, essentially poking holes in that little uh, membrane that separates our gut from our bloodstream and, and other internal, well, I think, lymph nodes and things like that, which you'll help me understand. Um, and, uh, and then also there are certain foods and chemicals and other environmental uh, inputs that loosen those junctions in our gut. Um, and the result of that is toxins and certain other bacterias and LPSs, and we can go into that, flowing into the bloodstream and, and um, stimulating an immune response that puts us, that triggers inflammation that can keep us in in a state of constant inflammation. So that's like a poor man, sort of a lay person's understanding mm -hmm. of the microbiome. Can you yeah. Yeah, pull on that a little bit to where I'm confused, where I've where I've properly characterized it. We'll build it up from the foundation maybe. So, you know, recognizing that kale was hurting my patients, that they would walk away with this, you know, prescription from me to do, you know, be juicing 
pound of kale a day and you know third to 40 percent of those patients would end up with severe bloating inflammation their blood sugars would get worse like everything was going in the wrong direction so what's in the kale that can do that is actually something called an insoluble fiber and so the insoluble fiber is supposed to stay in the gut and it's a very important part of kind of building the coral reef of biodiversity within that ecosystem of the intestines but if you have a really profound leaky gut, you're going to move that into the immune system, which sits immediately deep to that one layer of protection that you have, that gut lining, the endothelial barrier. I'm sorry, epithelial, that epithelial barrier between your bacteria and your bloodstream. It's one cell layer thick, half the width of a human hair. I mean, it's just this thin cellophane that covers two tennis courts and surface area. So massive surface area, super thin barrier. And as soon as you, you know, start to lose that, that, you know, that protective layer, you get things like that, that kale leaking in elements that should not have been there. And you have to build a food fight to that. And in that immune activation that becomes the food fight, you start to build an inflammatory reservoir of effort. And if every time you eat, that can get cascade into this chronic inflammatory state. So as we were starting to study those little carbon molecules made in soil, we started to extrapolate, obviously, if you've got a diverse gut microbiome, you're also going to make a lot of those new varieties of those carbon molecules. And the more variety of those carbon molecules you have, i.e. The, the more diverse your microbiome, the more fluent the communication is at the cell level. So we, so it had been well established long before I came on scene that the most verdant, you know, biodiverse ecosystem we had in soil on this planet was about 55 million years ago, right before the last great extinction happened. And so if you go back in the fossil layer to that 55 million year old soil, it looks kind of like brown coal, it's called off and it's, it's an, a young coal left in the ground another 150 million years, it will be coal. So it's like old dirt young coal somewhere in there and you extract start extracting carbon out of there you find a, a whole vast you know array millions of variants of these little carbon molecules and so we got good at extracting those in a water state and then putting those into human cell environments and so we can do a human gut or human blood brain barrier vascular system kidney tubules cancer cells all these things we're growing in our lab so grow out the human cells and then you introduce a communication and keep in mind there's no more bacteria and fungi from 60 million years ago they're long gone but they left behind them this wireless communication network and so in our, in our laboratory we got good at getting hydrogen and oxygen to bind back to these carbon molecules so that they would start to exchange information and so now imagine human cells human cells have been around a couple hundred thousand years we're early on late on the scene depending on how you say it but we've just showed up so we've never seen 60 million year old soil We've never seen that little level of microbial intelligence. So imagine the overwhelming experience of putting this liquid from freaking fossil dirt onto the surface of a gut and watch it in a Petri dish begin to heal. We've never seen that before. I had investigators alongside of me here who had been studying cell biology and biomechanics bio and genomics for you know, accumulative 150 years looking under these microscopes with me and it's like everyone just blowing their mind faster than you can you know really perceive these cells are rebuilding three-dimensional structures in petri dishes and the first thing they start to rebuild is fascinating is the proteins that make up the tight junctions that reverse the gut permeability and so i find it fascinating that at the cellular level 
the human self-identity at the immune system and beyond begins at this tight junction of the gut system. And isn't it fantastic that our self-identity at the cellular level depends on the intelligence of the microbial diversity within us? We only know who we are as humans if we are touching the beauty of diversity of Mother Nature. Hmm. The overwhelming majority of our immune system is in our gut. I, I, I'm not sure that everyone has a good understanding of that. Um, that a 70 to 80% of our immune system is in our gut. And, and that, when you think about it, it makes sense because our gut is really the most vulnerable place to encounter bacteria and toxins. I mean, we've got this skin layer that sort of protects us here on the outside. Um, but our gut is constantly in, in relationship with everything that we eat. So it's constantly training itself. The immune system, I should say, is constantly training itself of like, what is a threat? You know, what isn't a threat? Um, and, uh, and that's absolutely fascinating. And, and over time, provided that it's healthy, it becomes incredibly refined. Um, but now it seems like we're entering a precarious um, moment because there is so much um, permeability and there's so much metabolic syndrome and, and then all the associated um, disease. And so maybe you could take a moment and just pull the thread a little bit on the relationship between the gut and the immune system and how that might be relevant in, in this moment. Yeah. So we went back up to the 1970s as kind of a tipping point for this situation of um, pandemics. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, I read one article recently, it was like 12,800 pandemics since 1976. Let me repeat that, 12,800 pandemics since 19, there has been viruses that have gone global as new variants that act in a pathogenic relationship to the human body 12,000 times since the 1970s. Before that, it was actually a lot more rare. It, it was really in the 1960s and 70s when we started to see this acceleration of genomic information jumping species. And so this is where we started to suddenly see avian flu in swine and swine flu jumping to humans. Pigs and humans are we're identical. You, cut up my genome into 178 puzzle pieces, rearrange it, I spell pig. Doesn't surprise my wife or a lot of people, but <laughs> it, that that is fascinating. So it's not surprising that viruses can go from pig to human because we're so damn similar mm. genetically. Mm. Bird, quite a bit different, you know, in the world of, of mammals being relatively similar, the avian being a precursor genetically to us perhaps, much different. So it took these couple jumps. Now we can have avian flu that jumps all the way straight to human. And so we've seen this decrement in these boundaries between species as to which viruses we tend to swap. And so what we're really seeing as we see this massive acceleration of genomic communication between each other that we call viruses or pandemics, 
what we're seeing is a more and more desperate effort of our genetic codes to swap adaptive information to say, we have to get out of this trap. We have an extinction level event going on. The birds know it, the pigs know it, and I know it. And so my body is trying to communicate back to them. They're trying to communicate to me. What is, we need a new genetic record on the planet because it looks like we're all going extinct. So as you put extinction level stress on all of the organisms of the earth, the speed at which we start producing new genetic variants and putting them into the virome is really exciting. It's the way in which earth has survived five great extinction events in the past. After the extinction of the dinosaurs and all of the reptiles and single-celled you know, protozoa and everything else that happened, 97% of life disappears 55 million years ago. And suddenly, a few million years later, the world does not struggle back to the dinosaurs which is weird because a triceratops is just cool. Like why wouldn't Mother Earth want to do that again? There's certainly the genetics must be there, but it didn't do it because left behind that extinction level pressure is so much new genetic information. There's so much new potential for biodiversity and beauty on the planet that life goes that direction. And so we didn't have giant ferns and all of this struggling back. Instead, we suddenly got deciduous trees, flowering trees, we got, you know, wildflowers. And then we got the animals that would go with those, the, the bats and the butterflies and all the pollinators coming out of this genomic pool of information left behind by the stress of a planet under extinction. And then you see the beauty of the mammals come out of the birds, you know, the avians give rise to the mammals. How did that happen? How does an egg-laying species go to a placenta and live birth three important viruses have already been mapped. It's probably a few thousands of our 20,000 got inserted between avian and mammal. And those were all genetic updates from the virome. There was new ideas happening in the, in the life on the planet. And we were the new idea coming. And so you see, you know, the chimps and you see versions of Homo sapiens, you know, you've got the Neanderthals and these hominids start to kind of come out of the monkeys and but at no point, interestingly, does the fossil record have any evidence that it was like one gave rise to the next. Instead, we get these paradigm leaps, complete new ideas emerging from biology. How did they suddenly do that? How did we suddenly have dolphins like that could suddenly have live births? Like, this is craziness. How did that happen? And it happened through billions and billions of attempts of viruses coming into a, a symphony to follow the code of life, to follow the idea of something more beautiful. And the idea seems to be one that is driven by adaptation and this ever-present drive for biodiversity. More beauty is wanted. More expression of life is wanted. And so this is how we came on the scene. So now as we look at these pandemics of the last 40 years, we can start to map this back to the microbiome. In the 1960s and 70s, we started manifesting the large-scale chemical agriculture. And we had to do this through herbicides and pesticides because in the 1950s, we had developed the Green Revolution. At the end of World War II, we started spraying all of this you know, fossil fuel-derived NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium fertilizers into our soils to turn all of our crops green. And we recovered from the Dust Bowl. You know, you remember how badly we had covered and killed our topsoils in the 1920s, 30s to, to lead to the Dust Bowl. We had decimated 98% of the, the farmland in the United States. By World War II, the only thing we were living off of, 50% of our food was coming from our backyard gardens. 
And so we had already destroyed the land. And so to recover that, we discovered we could pour petroleum, MPK, right back into the soil. So it was like the foot on the accelerator. What we didn't realize we were doing was sucking the carbon intelligence out of the out of the planet and out of our, our soil system at that moment. Because nitrogen is the foot on the accelerator p- panel of you know the biologic sequence of growing a plant. And the gas in the gas tank is carbon of many different variations. And that's the same thing for being a human. I, I run off entirely off of carbon. I run off of carbohydrates and fatty acids. Those are both carbon strands. Actually, my commune course goes into deep detail. Yeah. So you want to really <laughs> geek out on what humans run on yeah. is actually sunlight released from carbon. Yeah. And so we are a version of this exciting capacity to take carbon. So no different. But if you take MPK and you start spraying that in the soils every year, year on year, demanding more and more of that carbon reserve, you end up depleting the carbon matrix and you end up with this dead soil. And when you get low carbon substrate, low healthy fuel source for the soil, you end up with plants that are growing with a low immunity. And you suddenly have invasive weeds and you have invasive bugs. And suddenly chemical industry says, oh my God, we're gonna have to create some chemicals for you. Here's (laughs) here's a chemical pesticide for all those bugs that are attacking your low vibration, low fed, poorly nutrient, you know, fueled plants. Here's here's your pesticide. Oh my gosh, invasive weeds happen when the root systems become weak in plants. And so these invasive weeds are coming in and now you're no problem. Well, here's herbicides, the weed killers. And of course, by the 1970s, we had advanced those those weed killers to be extraordinary. And so we this is organophosphates, the cousins to Agent Orange. And so Agent Orange, another organophosphate, was too toxic to put into our food, it seemed. So we created, you know, uh, this glyphosate compound, which is now the active ingredient Roundup, and 95% of all of the weed killers on the planet have glyphosate in them now. And so we are pouring some four and a half billion pounds of this this herbicide into our food and water systems every year now. And it is the most prolific antibiotic that we have on the planet. And so in the 1970s, we began to erode the foundation. 1950s, we eroded the foundation of carbon and fuel. So the life energy within our food started to diminish. So suddenly our plants and our children started to become vulnerable at the immune system in ways in which we had never done before. The chemical company rushed in and said, no problem. We have ag chemicals for you and we have pharmaceuticals for you. And so we started the same companies offering up solutions to a dying immune system because we were starving for light energy. And so this was the matrix that started to get set up in the 1970s. 1974, we debuted Roundup. And by 1976, it went into large spread distribution into our food system. And right at 1976 is when we see that huge jump from avian all the way to human with flu virus and others. And so we start to go interspecies with our pandemics at that moment because we were putting extinction level stress within the microbiome that was making the gut of a bird, the gut of a pig, the gut of a human work. And so we switched from depleted energy wise to toxins. And so now we were depleted and toxic with these chemicals that were eroding ultimately our microbiome through acting as antibiotics. But I already told you that if you don't have the microbiome intact, you lose that wireless communication network and you're going to lose the tight junctions and you're going to lose your identity. And so we started a colossal destruction of self-identity, not just for humans, but for the earthworms, for every organism within the soils, with uh, the birds that would eat those earthworms, the the animals, the those poor pigs, this horrific situation with our, our fowl today, the, the whole protein industry around turkeys and, and poultry is just 
tragic. I mean, yeah. this is a, this is a holocaust going on in these things because these animals have no sense of self. Can you imagine eating food that's 400 times the level of Roundup that you and I consume in our food in this chicken feed? So they're literally eating glyphosate, you know, and so they're eroding their self-identity and they're crammed in a cage. Their neighbors are shitting on them from above. It's this horrific, you know, holocaust scene. A third of the flock is dead before we can sa sacrifice them at, at six weeks of age. This is the level of stress we're putting on the planet. And we, sh and we keep asking ourselves, what's the next virus that's going to attack us? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, we're already administering, over-administering broad-spectrum antibiotics anyways to address any even hint of bacterial uh, infection in humans. Um, so we're already killing ourselves, our microbes, through through the prescription of antibiotics. But of course, we're also administering antibiotics in all of these animals that are living in these concentrated animal feeding operations. And we're not really injecting them with antibiotics because they're sick. We're, we're injecting them to, to plump them up, really, for, essentially because we're depleting their bacteria through that process. And what happens when you deplete your bacteria? You get fat. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, so we're consuming, uh, we're, we're being overprescribed antibiotics by Western allopathic medicine, and then we've got industrial intensive agriculture that's using antibiotics in um, in in intensive cattle farms, and by extension, we're eating that meat, um, and then of course. We're talking about glyphosate, and you know we haven't. And I know that we uh, addressed that in some great deal, uh, great detail in our in our last conversation. But that is having all sorts of detrimental effects on on the microbes in our gut. So, you know, here we are um, in this immunocompromised state, and you know, I mean, it's like we, you know, read read the same science journals and, and articles, you know, particularly as now we're confronted with this virus, this pandemic that's really sitting on top of this endemicity of, of systemic degradation. And, and is it any wonder that folks that are the most immunocompromised, that have the most comorbidities, seem to have the greatest prevalence of aggressive COVID of hospitalization and fatality because essentially they're living in a perma inflammation state. And, uh, you know, as, as, and maybe you can kind of help me understand this, but I've always used the metaphor of kind of the immune system as kind of a police force in a way. It, you know, can kind of be there when the bad guys show up. But right now, it seems like many of us have the police force <laughs> with guns drawn, ready to go all of the time. And what this is seems to be creating, at least from what I can understand with COVID, is that there is a, that, that it is not so much the infection that is, seems to be the most deleterious, but it is the immune system's reaction or overreaction, which has been um, called the cytokine storm, because when essentially when the immune system is triggered, it sends out a signal, which is a cytokine, and certain cytokine cells or certain cytokine signals can um, precipitate cell death. 
uh, and from at least from what I've seen is that what is happening with people that that die from COVID is that the 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 cell or the lining in their lungs essentially starts to die and it begins to fill with fluid and then they're on ventilators and and they essentially die of uh, of pneumonia. Is that like a is that a fair understanding? Or I'm wondering how yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, it's exactly right. So you know we can look at the comorbidities that risk mortality. First of all, just generally speaking. Anybody with a chronic disease condition showed a lot higher mortality in the last year and a half. And whether that was due to coronavirus is almost irrelevant. We right. can say with confidence that every year, most of the people that are going to die are going to have metabolic disease, vascular disease, inflammatory cascades elevated. You know, this is the nature of death. Is These are the precursors to profound biologic dysfunction to get type 2 diabetes there has to be so many things messed up in your body it's insane like the most important most heavily regulated thing in your body is how to get fuel to the mitochondria and use it <laughs> right. and so when you see that breaking down you know you've messed up a lot of things and so you have to be a pretty sick population before you start to see diabetes in a few which is where we were at in the 1920s and you know teddy roosevelt in 1906 or something like that he was yelling about type 2 diabetes He's like no nobody in america should have type 2 we're going to eradicate this disease because it is absolutely environmental that's teddy roosevelt in 1904 <laughs> right. you can't find doctors to agree on that today like it's ludicrous but there was nobody from today's viewpoint in 1904 who type 2 diabetes so to get to the point where we have in in the universal screening stuff like around philadelphia there was a recent you know just great moment in, in doctoring where i'm like you know we're all dying why isn't anybody talking about this and i happen to be in philly and i flip on the the hotel tv to catch the weather on my way to the airport and and this young journalist he looks like to me like he's 20 years old maybe he's older but he looked so young just like right out of school and he's so pleased with this glucometer that he's got and he's walking around philly some 20 year old journalist doing universal screening of everybody he can find on the street he finds an astonishing 48 percent of just people walking around the streets of philly with diabetes and everybody he's talking to, he's like, your blood sugar is 130. Do you know you have diabetes? I don't have diabetes. Like, you know, it's just an astonishing amount of diabetes out there. So if if half of our population is pre-diabetic or diabetic in the urban setting or rural settings, we've got a serious dysfunction. And so when somebody says 400,000 people died last year, well, actually tens of millions of people died last year. And the vast majority from some iteration of the dysfunction that we would call COVID, you know. Does anybody die of a virus? Nobody dies of a virus. People die of profound dysfunctional immune communication behind the experience of seeing that virus. This is why 99.9% .9 of the people that see coronavirus are never going to end up in a hospital or dead. It's because the vast majority have so many checks and balances that even in the run-of-the-mill American who's in crappy health is still resilient to this thing. So there, it is impossible that coronavirus as an agent is a fatal condition. It's, it's not possible that that's the vector for death. Else 99% of people would, would not be resistant to it. And so when we see something like HIV or Zika or coronavirus come along, we're told, oh my God, this is a horrible pathogen. All that's happening is we are misinterpreting the ecosystem in which that virus is occurring that makes it look like a culpable you know, pathogen. It's one in a mix. 
I've been desperately looking for the, the single article to finally come out to show which of the 200 typical viruses that we track in the bloodstream of a person are present when they die from coronavirus death. I guarantee you they're all going to be there. Every herpes virus will be revved up. You'll see CMV, EBV, and you know, all of these chronic viruses are going to be present at high levels in that individual because their immune system is in complete collapse. And it's interesting for us to back up from him and be like, okay, so what is going on? Is it the police force that you talked about? Because that's been the long held belief is that we have this, this militaristic, militarized system that's beating back life so that we can be safe. And honest to God, that's 90, 95% of physicians still are taught this and believe this because we have, the picture has been so thoroughly painted on this germ warfare concept. And so we believe in germ warfare. So we believe that the immune system must be that war, war mongering agent. And we are here to beat back life so that we can be human. Except it starts to, to emerge that we're not human. We're mostly microbial. And all of those microbes in my body are necessary there. And so my immune system was never a police force. My immune system was actually the conductor of the orchestra. An immune system is not a battleground. An immune system is to figure out who belongs in which seat of the orchestra? Oh, Pseudomonas, so glad you showed up. We, we need fourth chair of the violins. Oh my gosh, Bacillobacter, great to have you here. Trombone section right now. The whole concept of the immune system is revolutionizing right now. We do not have a human immune system. We have a dance of microbes that are so far outnumber the human cells within me. And so if I'm supposed to maintain a balanced relationship with 1.5 quadrillion bacteria, which is current estimate, that's a very large number, the orchestra is huge, and that's dancing in my mere 70 trillion. And so if I'm 10x'd by my bacteria, more than 20x'd, so 20 times more bacteria than human cells, whoa, we had the wrong model of the immune system. I was never sterile. If I had been, I would have never been born. I need this dancing garden. I need this organic symphony within me all the time. So the immune system, we need to rethink of, it's literally the conductor at the front of the orchestra saying, tune to this. This is life. This is life giving. We need the soil system. We need the nutrient delivery. We need the nutrient extraction at the mitochondrial level. We need those then fueling, releasing light energy through the gap junction fiber optic cables to light this person up. That's the immune system of the future. And so when somebody comes in and say, says, I have Corona or I have HIV or I have anything, we just rush in and be like, oh, symphony's out of tune. Sorry about that. We must be missing a few, you know, chairs in the orchestra. Let's, let's figure out how to tune this back. Oh, you know what? You're missing this. We're going to send you up to uh, Northern Africa. We're going to take you out of Sub-Saharan Africa and we'll send you up to Morocco for a few months and breathe the microbiome on the beaches there and repopulate what you're missing because of all of the chemical damage we've done in down in South Africa and the Sub-Saharan areas. So we're going to repopulate you or we're going to send you out for a month-long walkabout with the Aboriginal peoples and, and get your microbiome completely rebuilt and you're going to go back you know, to some extraordinary foundation. The American Gut Project with, jo with uh, Jeff Leach, I don't know if we mentioned that last time. No, but I know just a little bit about yeah, it. Yeah, phenomenal. This guy's just brilliant. Not He's an anthropologist, if I'm remembering, Jeff, if you're listening, I'm sorry if I've got you wrong there, but anthropologist by training, I think, and um, or maybe even archaeologist. He was you know, working at this intersection of, of history and humanity and all of this. And his daughter uh, got, got type 1 diabetes at 18 months of age. 
And he rushed around this early 2000s and was like, what's, how did this happen? How do I reverse this? You know, and all the doctors in the U.S. were saying the same thing. I was like, that's a lifelong condition. Nothing you can do about it. He was super unhappy with that description. And so he started digging into literature in Japan and found some of those very early articles that were suggesting there was a shift in the microbiome that was giving a propensity to autoimmune disease. And so he started studying the microbiome in himself. He cashed in all of his 401ks and everything else and started his own organization, science organization, very first to start really asking deep questions about genomics. And now, you know, 20 years later, he's got all these universities working with him and all of this. But the American Gut Project uh, is really not studying Americans anymore. It's studying the hunter-gatherer tribes in Africa to realize that these guys are, you have 10x, 100x, sometimes 1,000x the microbial diversity of the American gut. And so the average American is already this denuded, you know, ecosystem that's barely functional. And then we attribute our dysfunction to a virus. One of the 10 to the 31 viruses in the air that I'm breathing, one of the 10 to the 15 viruses, 10 billion viruses in my bloodstream right now. And I'm going to tell you that it's coronavirus because I'm dying. Coronavirus, if it occurs in an unbalanced fashion with the organism, is a symptom of the dysfunction of the organism in the first place. Right. In so my we've opinion, degraded the ground conditions. Nobody's ever died of coronavirus, ever. We died of our own lack of coordination, lack of you know balance with the ecosystem we've so created. Let me ask you, 1945, when we were eating 45, 50% of our food from backyard gardens, so I assume we were getting great diversity of plants because also you think about each plant has its own microbiome, right? So you're actually, when you're eating a diversity of different plants, you're actually getting a whole variety of, of biota that way. Um, we clearly, this was pre-glyphosate, pre-mass uh, administration of antibiotics, um, you know, probably not consuming the levels of sugar, some of the other environmental and lifestyle habits that mm -hmm. we've now inherited. Would we have been as susceptible in 1945 to a variety, uh, a virus like SARS-CoV-2 as we are now? No, and because uh, it was here and we weren't. <laughs> no, it's yeah. not new. There is nothing new under the sun. Coronavirus dates back thousands of years in, in, with us. Yeah. HIV, we can track it all the way back to the very beginning of the U.S. blood bank, 1959. And it was in the blood bank. Yeah. We didn't have a problem with HIV until 1980. So what happened between 1959 and 1980? We lost the microbiome. We lost the biodiversity. We lost our immunity. The same thing, same time that HIV was starting to occur in the population, hep C went completely bonkers for the very first time. And so it's just, you know, we, we can map very specifically when the human organism began to fail in its relationship to the microbiome, to the virome at large. And that in the 1950s and 60s was set in play because we shifted at that moment our military complex to an agricultural complex. When we set war against the microbiome, when we used our chemical warfare from, from the you know, World War II, Korea, into Vietnam, and we started turning that onto our agricultural systems, we now face the problem globally that we have depleted or severely depleted 97% of the soils of the planet. And so imagine the viral miscommunication, viral dysfunction, the immune system's complete incapacity for figuring out how to adapt this genetic code that's being screamed at us. Earth is literally screaming at us through these 10 to 31 viruses that we're breathing. Here's the solution. Here's the adaptation possibility. Do you want to play? No, we don't want to play. We're going to spread. We're going to repurpose our 
I've seen in Sweden, Switzerland, they had repurposed their their snow making machines for their their the Alps into vir- antiviral sprayers, and they were spraying <laughs> stuff into their streets. China yeah. had repurposed their agricultural sprayers into antiviral sprayers for their cities, and they're literally yeah. going up and down city blocks, spraying this crap in the air, saying we're going to kill all viruses because we heard there was a bad one. Yeah, holy cow. We are annihilating the very genomic intelligence of the planet so that we can be safe. And it's our death. Yeah. And if you you trace back all those autoimmune diseases that started to appear, they often started to appear in kind of upper income uh, demographics, in demographics that that were using uh, antibacterial soaps or, you know, all of these um, sterility measures. And, uh, and, and clearly we just, we didn't draw the, the lessons from that. Um, and we, you know, we've just continued down this inexorable march. I mean, you look at even just the rates of C-sections and I will say sometimes C-sections are needed, uh, in, in breech births and, and other things and other, but, you know, I, I think I read a statistic, it's like 35% of, of, preg- or of deliveries are now C-sections and what, um, and, and the the vaginal microbes that a baby misses out on um when without a vaginal birth um although now i've started to see some doctors swab you know um vaginal swabbing is the most important public health intervention we could do for babies right now yeah um but here we are you know we've talked about the prevalence of diabetes obviously um coronary disease alzheimer's um cancer you know, we've talked about the degradation of the soil, but if even you kind of like pull back from there, from a societal perspective, I mean, we're verging on a sick care system that is requiring $4 trillion, maybe upwards to $5 trillion a year. That is just not uh, a sustainable number to actually, for our own national security. Um, and of course, now we've also centralized power within a few companies. I mean, obviously, you know, the elephant in the room that, you know, bears the brunt of a lot of this is Bayer Monsanto, um, that now is introducing the the next iteration of, of glyphosate, as we talked a little bit about in our last discussion, Liberty Link, but they're also the number one pharmaceutical on the other side because they're selling anti-inflammatory drugs like uh, Aleve and um, and they own a number of other kind of big uh, anti-inflammatory NSAIDs, I guess what they're called, which of course also um, contribute to intestinal permeability and they're designed to be anti-inflammatories <laughs> to essentially address the very thing that they cause. Yeah. So... You know, where do we go from here? Um, I guess both up here from a policy regulatory perspective and then also from an individual perspective, because I do think that there is tremendous reason for hope and optimism, as there always is when one is at a at a crossroads. But where, where do we go? I mean, the obvious thing is we should just, you know, collective suicide is the next step, you know, so I think that's <laughs> well, we know, can talk one, about one, death. <laughs> one, one approach. Um, probably Maybe that's what we're approach. doing. <laughs> so I think this is what we're doing. We're eliminating the problem. So this is one approach. But, you know, obviously there is, 
you know, such beauty in the matrix of the universe and the earth. You know, I told you a story of 60 million year old dirt that had these carbon molecules. And in 2012, when we started putting those into individuals who were suffering the worst food deserts, you know, families, third, fourth generation, all with diabetes. Hmm. I was treating them all in my clinic, which was unique in, in the rural setting because you don't see this in, in many places in, in what Western civilization anymore. But in the same household, I would have four generations and I got to take care of the whole family. And so I would see grandma in a wheelchair who'd had bilateral amputations of her legs due to peripheral vascular disease and, and neuropathy from her diabetes. Um, she's also on dialysis twice a week. And then I would see her daughter, who's 20 years younger, who has profound neuropathy all the way up to her, uh, you know, top of her thighs, can't feel her legs, has got ulcers in her feet. And she's 20 years younger. So grandma's, you know, bedbound and dialysis and everything else at 62 daughter at 42 can't feel her legs has ulcers is is going likely to die before her mother even because she's gonna she has less immune system less function her daughter uh at, at you know 22 23 years of age just came out of college morbid obesity polycystic ovarian syndrome infertile and uh and unable to um you know complete a multiple choice test due to just profound brain fog, executive dysfunction. So she's working an entry level, you know, countertop job at a gas station and her relationships are falling apart because she got major depression. She's on antidepressants. She's suicidal. And her daughter, who's two years old, has prediabetes. <laughs> and so that yeah. was what I started to see every day in Gosh. clinic. And at that point, I was like, you know, the ship has sailed. There's nothing that I can do to disrupt this thing. And then a couple of years into this thing, we discover all these carbon molecules and we start extracting this stuff. And I, I went through a whole bunch of series of safety testing and I was drinking gallons. I was doing it intravenously. I was getting crazy with this stuff because we was doing cooler and cooler stuff all the time. And I finally got, you know, after six months of this, I decided I got to start putting this in my patients. It's just unethical not to offer hope, you know, and is it possible? So I had these white bottles of dirt water from dinosaur era and I <laughs> had a Sharpie marker and I was the entire marketing department. I just wrote on it with a Sharpie marker and said, take one tablespoon three times a day. And God bless my patients for the trust. They would grab a white unlabeled bottle with this dirty looking water in it and, and start drinking that. And what I found out is that mother nature is more graceful than you would expect. Hmm. In the soils of Mother Earth 60 million years ago, she would put an antidote to the chemicals that we would destroy her soils with 60 million years later. And we found the antidote to Roundup in these carbon molecules. And people were literally reversing that permeable gut dysfunction. It, this acts not only as the communication network got, but also the compost within the gut to support this recovery of the microbiome. So fast, so amazing. I had this pancreatic cancer patient, which was one of my very first to start taking uh, Ion and she uh, was one of my hospice patients. I my third specialty was in hospice and palliative care, and I was associate director at a hospice. And one of the nurses came in one day. I was admitting about eighty patients a week, so I didn't see most of the patients because they were homebound or whatever. And so there's no way I was going to get around and see everybody. But the teams of nurses and everything would get the eighty patients admitted. Uh, the average lifespan in an American hospice is three weeks. We're supposed to give a six-month diagnosis, but doctors are so hesitant to tell people that they're dying now that we wait until they're literally dying to say, you know what, we should just make you comfortable. We should take off all these drugs. We should stop the interventions. And so we're very bad at, at announcing the end of biology as doctors. We're so afraid of death and we, we feel like such failures in the face of it. And so this woman was given three weeks to live. She hadn't eaten in a year and a half. 
And this nurse said, and you got to see this woman. She's unbelievable. And so I was like, okay. She weighed 59 pounds. And she's literally a walking skeleton. I've never seen anything like it. Like the pictures of the concentration camps don't do justice to what this woman had gone through. She had such a complete obstruction of her bowel from her pancreatic cancer that no water had been able to pass through her small intestine. So she would wet her mouth, you know, 30 times a day to try to decrease the pain from just cracking membranes in her mouth. And she hadn't eaten. 59 pounds, you could see an entire skull structure, the zygomatic arches under her cheeks. It was just unbelievable. Never seen anything like it. And I'm told that she's at this address, something like this. I ding the world and this walking skeleton comes to the door, answers it with the biggest smile, brightest blue eyes you've ever seen. Says, hello, doctor. I heard you were coming. Thanks for coming. Welcomes me and walks across the room. I couldn't believe she was, was ambulatory. It was just it defied anything I'd ever seen. Not only walking around, happy, excited. And I'm like, you are just amazing, which is exactly what my nurse had said. And I sit down. And um, I start asking, like, you know, so you haven't eaten in a year and a half. It's pretty fascinating as a doctor, like, to see you've digested your entire body here. You know, like, y- you are just so resilient. You're so beautiful and you're so optimistic. And she's like, well, yeah, I, I'm not going to die from this cancer. And I was like, why Why not? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm your hospice doctor. And she's like, oh, I know. The other doctors told me. They all they all told me I was going to die. I totally get it. But I'm only 59 years old and I've, I've got this son who's, who's an organist and I really want to see his career land because it's, it's, I feel like it's so unlikely that he can make a job as an organist. But I really am putting all my energy into holding space for him to be successful. Oh, okay. And I said, well, you seem to have very high conviction that you're going to survive this thing. And she's like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, all right, well, how do you know? How do you know? I kept pushing because she was just like, I had never met somebody so confident that this wasn't her death. And she said, oh, well, like six months ago, God showed up in one of my dreams and just told me the whole thing that I wasn't going to die of my cancer and, you know, unexpected turn events would happen, all this stuff. And I was just like, wow, this is unbelievable. And so as a doctor, that's where you start to back off when God tells somebody something. You're like, (laughs) okay, I probably shouldn't weigh in any further on this. But of course, in my mind, I'm like, there's no way this woman survives another week or two. And so... Um, I go back to my lab and we're talking and we start doing our first initial studies in cancer with this thing and and all this. But she's been having for a year and a half white chalk stools, which is where there's no gut microbiome left. There's no organic material. There's literally nothing to compost. And so every three days or so, they slough all of the lining of the gut, which turns over every three days. And so they end up with this thing that looks like a piece of white chalk, which is the epithelial lining of their entire gut just sloughing. And they pass that. So she's been having white chalk stools, sterile stools for over a year. And I finally had the conviction, like, I got to get her this dirt water. Like, I, I, I know she can't really drink it. She's got a bowel obstruction, but, you know, I, maybe we can shift the microbiome. Who knows? So I bring this white bottle with Sharpie marker written on it and say, you know, this is a long shot. I, I don't expect anything really dramatic, but I, I just want you. She's, she calls up on Friday just bawling. And I'm on my cell phone. I'm on the way out of the hospital. And I can't understand a word. I'm like, okay, I think she's dying. I'm gonna, I'm on my way to you. Don't worry. I'm almost there. And so I'm driving. She's crying. And she finally catches her breath. And is like, doc, doc, I'm so sorry. You don't have to come here. I'm I'm crying out of joy. I just had my first large brown bowel movement in an hour and a half. <laughs> and I kept driving to her house because it didn't make any sense. Because there's no bacteria in this dirt water. And so... 
we get there and I'm sitting there trying to talk to her. And this whole time I, she had saved it in the toilet. I'm sitting there looking at this huge, healthy looking bowel moon. I'm like, where did this come from? How did this organic material recover? So what I'm telling you is a story of the most extraordinary grace I've ever seen in my life. This woman could not have been closer to a sterile death experience as a human being. And I, I simply took this liquid from 60 million years ago and Mother Earth said, let me give you back your soil. And this woman reconstituted her microbiome in her gut without even being able to pass that. She hadn't eaten anything because she can't eat. And so I could, I'm sitting there trying to figure out how did all the bacteria showed up? Where did they come from? Because I know it's not from the liquid. The whole time I'm trying to focus on her, I've got this annoying ass little lap dog jumping up in my face, licking my face. I'm so annoyed. The 10th time I push that thing off my lap, I look down and I suddenly do a double take. I'm like, oh my gosh. God, yeah. I was like, God. I said, where does this dog do, do its, is this a, a house dog? She's like, no, I push him out every morning. He goes, runs around in my whole garden where I used to work, but I can't go out to the garden anymore. That dog brought the microbiome of her world back to her, licking her face. She had a fecal transplant with just that dog licking yeah. her face, oh kissing God. it and everything else. And I just was in tears by the end of this, realizing the grace of this world. That dog wanted that woman to live. That dog gave the intelligence of its nature back to that woman. And so all, all it took was this little bit of liquid, this little gift from the soils of Mother Earth 60 million years ago to begin a process of regeneration in a woman that by any mark should have been dead. Hmm. A year later, or maybe it was 10 months, something like this, her son ends up winning the Leipzig organ contest, the largest organ contest in the world, at, and became not only the youngest person to to get into it, the, I mean, not only was he the youngest person to win it, he was the youngest person to ever get entered into this thing. So his career at that moment was set. What's the chance that your son decides to go into Oregon as his main industry and wins the game at 21 years of age? And so he's now like the number one organist in the world. And she, I, I come by to visit her. And at this point she was, she had, we'd already discharged her from hospice because she clearly wasn't dying. And I, you yeah. know, not, her cancer was still there, but she'd started eating within a week. Like once her microbiome was back, gut obstruction went away. She was ma making me stew all the time. I'd go over after work and she'd drop and have a bowl of soup for me and we'd be talking. She taught me so much in those coming months. Son wins this thing. And uh, my chaplain goes to pray for her the following Friday and he was going every Friday all year. He, everybody loved her. Like we'd already discharged her and these people were still coming back to her. You know, we weren't getting paid anymore for seeing her or anything like that. It was just like she had become all of our, 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 our <laughs> she was our guru in a lot of ways at our hospice. So she was amazing. And chaplain uh, sitting with her and uh, she suddenly says, I need to, I need to lay down on my grounding sheet. And so I have grounding sheets on all my patients' beds. And so she laid down on this grounding sheet and She's laying there and he's praying over and he suddenly hears a shout and he looks up and she's jumped up towards the ceiling, is reaching for the ceiling with this huge smile on her face and suddenly dies in midair and falls back in the bed. <laughs> oh my God. She didn't die of her cancer. She saw an opening up there in heaven and went. She jumped. She jumped out of the body and this guy witnessed it. And he, she fell back dead on the, on the bed. And this has become one of my guiding stories of... Being a physician today, when you step in, if you're willing to release the belief of your micromanagement on the human condition, and you're willing to let nature do her miracle, 
let nature step back into that patient's life. Let that lap dog do more than you could ever do as a chemotherapy inventor or anything else you're going to come up with. Let nature do her work. Get out of the role of the patriarch saying, you will die in three weeks and get into this role of humility. Miracles are going to happen. And that patient always leaves exactly when they're supposed to leave. I don't care if you think you're in control or you're not in control. Souls do not accidentally do the most important thing that they do in a human body is the exit strategy. And they don't ever do that by accident. And so if somebody has died and somebody says that's from coronavirus, I want to encourage you to rethink that and wonder that individual, whether seeming like a tragedy out of the blue, that person just took an exit strategy that it was planned for. I believe the soul knew its journey, knew when it would exit and knew why it would exit at that moment for a journey much greater than could ever happen in a human vessel. There is no accidents of 400,000 people dying in the United States from something called coronavirus. I believe this is a coordinated effort of souls to wake us up. Souls are jumping to leave behind light energy, to leave behind a, a genomic record of life, to participate on something bigger than we can imagine right now. If it's extinction we're marching into, it is a co-creative playground of the genome to create something more beautiful than humanity. What's the difference between a fern and a deciduous tree? Such beauty there. Ferns are amazing, but flowering deciduous tree and those cherry blossoms, whatever it is, stunning. What comes next? next? Yeah. What is that next paradigm leap of beauty look like? Are the souls that are joining the right, right now the autistic children in my clinic? What is the courage of a soul that jumps into an autistic child who will be nonverbal by 18 months of age? They'll suddenly have a neurologic injury that they cannot talk. They can't make eye contact with their parents anymore. They'll never be able to have social interactions at any normal level. And they'll hit their head against a wall for six or eight hours a day to create enough pain so they can focus away from the cacophony of sensory overload. What soul signs up for that? That's a courageous, courageous moment of a soul jumping into a crisis state to bring light into a space of a dying species because we thought we were disconnected. We thought we were the center of human health and we are learning a deep lesson right now that we need to reconnect. We need to re-grace ourselves with nature. Mm. Oh, Zach. Yes, that is, that is expansive. And there's so many threads to pull there. I mean, first off, what strikes me is from that story is, is just nature wants to forgive. You know, it is such a forgiving force. I mean, you talk about um, just in the human body, but, you know, I've, I've heard you talk also about how quickly soil that's untilled and unsprayed, how that will effloresce in a year yeah. on a farm that's been desiccated and, and, and degraded uh, for a generation it will, that nature's bounty will bounce back in almost no time. Yes. And so, first of all, there's a, there's an incredible lesson in that. And then the other thread I just want to pull on for a minute is, is, is around the notion of death. And of course, it's fascinating to imagine what the next iteration of life is right and it, it takes a lot of removal because you know we become so very very attached to um 
you know, we're very anthropocentric. We become very attached to debates about like ethics and morality, like we had the other night, of like how it how it pertains to you know people's well being here on Earth right now, and and we can get very. Uh, passionate and very in some ways lost in those conversations but if we if we really want to just kind of be expansive and imagine what the next iteration of life is i mean this gets incredibly creative from a just from an ideas and a conversation perspective and you know as i've thought about death as i think many people have over the last 18 months and in a way it's been a great blessing for people to recalibrate um their uh philosophy or their ideas about death and you know i was thinking about like pre-enlightenment you know in in a world of revelation or um a world of dusty old scrolls and books um you know life the miracle or the the best part of life was something that you looked forward to after the corporeal physical body decayed and you know, this was paradise in the afterlife, and there's all sorts of problems with that. But as we became kind of rational, as we sort of attached ourselves to the reason and rationality and science of the Enlightenment, we began to change how we thought about death and that we knew, quote unquote, or we thought we knew the reasons why we died. And, you know, some generally post enlightenment, when you died, it was someone's fucking fault. You know, yes. like it was the doctor's fault or someone's fault or your fault over here. And what that did was it, 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 it took the, the meaning of life and transported it from the afterlife into this finite period. And within that finite period, you know, it is very easy to succumb to fear because if, if all there is, is this moment between, uh, you know, the birthing center and, and the crematorium or the mortuary, you know, we have to make the most of this thing and we have to figure it out and we have to understand all of its component parts and we have to extend it as long as we possibly can. And, you know, all of these things. And now, you know, there's this uh, kind of longevity movement that is not really a longevity movement. It's an amortality movement. <laughs> um, and I kind of play some of the thought experiments out there. It's like if you have nanotechnology in, uh, in combination with stem cells, you know, in your body that is repairing every organ as it starts to degrade, and now you can live forever, would you ever leave your hermetically sealed house for risk of being run over by a bus? And so we, <laughs> um, so we, you know, as we think that we can control more and more. Um, for me, that is, a, we seem to be um, on a precipice of fear all the time. And to have this kind of a conversation, though it can be kind of morose or, and maybe a bit modeling, but of what is next? What, what, what role do we play in the unfurling of life in 
in, in a, in, with an understanding that's just greater than our own individual plights. It's fascinating. I believe it's spectacular. We're going to play a spectacular role. It's going to be more beautiful than you and I can imagine. We're about to play a role in the universe, not on the planet. And it's going to be spectacular. Since the last time I talked to you, I got to go down into the rainforest of, of southern Ecuador to the sacred headwaters of the Amazon and stay with the Achuar tribe down there. They were the most recent and last indigenous people to really make contact with the West, 1996 kind of time frame. And uh, I had the blessing of going down there with Lynn Twist and the whole Pachamama group, which mm -hmm. had been taking people deep into the rainforest for since 96. And uh, Lynn was tasked with the effort to task by the Achuar tribe upon contact they reached out to Lynn interestingly so they were the to our knowledge the very first indigenous people that worked at reached out to a colonial power hmm. and then so instead of waiting for us to infiltrate the rainforest to kill them they reached out and said to Lynn and those that came on that first trip we're reaching out to you to help the west to help civilization redream your dream because your current trajectory is going to kill all of us. And for the last 25 years, Pachamama Alliance has been trying to work on helping us redream that dream. But being down there with the Oshawa tribe was very illuminating as to how did we get here? What, what are we doing? What is our role in this greater schema of life within the universe? And interestingly, these Oshawa are extremely versed through the last you know couple hundred years of their experience in extraterrestrial intelligence they describe it all the time sat with the the vice president of of the Oshawar tribe and had my mind blown by her experiences and insights about spacecraft and traveling and through pods and i was like wait what like <laughs> where am i right now i thought i was like on the edge of civilization and she's talking about <laughs> space travel and all this stuff and quantum loops and you know core wormholes and she said the only problem with traveling at that is you start to miss your mother and so she wanted to make sure that when when she steps into the capsule that she has a picture of her mother what and so I'm going through this experience of watching these people describe this dance of life throughout the universe that they're dreaming. It's not limited even to, you know, the West being the problem or the solution or whatever. It's they're literally seeing a matrix of life dancing through the universe, communicating, interacting, learning from one another, being brothers and sisters to one another. And the Oshawar predicted uh, many years ago, their prophecy of this time was that in this decade that we're in, the the wing of the condor would open so they have this prophecy of the eagle and the condor and basically mankind has two wings the masculine which is the eagle has been flapping since our origin the feminine condor wing had not unfolded yet and so we've been flying in a circle spiraling down as humanity since our origin battling this masculine wing trying to stay afloat more and more desperate every time with every cycle in this moment, the feminine wing, the condor wing will unfold and for the first time, humanity will fly straight. When I talk about being regraced by nature, talking about us coming into the fru full fruition of who the hell are we? We are the masculine and the feminine. We can unfurl both wings. We can fly to heights unseen, unimagined. We can start to soar as a species as we stop seeing ourselves as other. 
if you look at the march of you know co cognition intellectual capacity through the animal kingdom you look at you know the wonder of a bat and or, or a butterfly had this blue morpho just bless me in the rainforest it was crazy we had just been in this this ceremony with one of the the shaman and we'd been down in this rate in this rainforest deep rainforest waterfall like in a half moon shaped cliff that's just pouring water over it 20 foot drop into this this little bay gorgeous and they'd only shown this to even their their best friends just six years ago so the West saw this for the first time six years ago, and we got to go there and had this tobacco ceremony where they got this liquid tobacco that you sniff in your nose, and it's just so, be so beautiful to see how they see themselves as part of the plant life, how they use mm. t tobacco as this this way to connect to the soil itself and all this and they use it as a ceremonial cleansing and then you then you dive into the waterfall and this thing just pounds the heck out of here so much water coming over you. And I come out of that and this blue morpho butterfly starts hovering around the whole group. And I had had my, my clothes on the side of the thing and it, for some reason, befriended my pants. And so when I put my pants on this blue morpho associated with me with home and it started landing again and again on my thigh. And I simply just left my hand there and this blue morpho ended up coming down to my hand over and over again. And its proboscis would come out and lick all over the tip of one of my fingers. And the harder I concentrated, the more I stared at this thing. And it was literally like going to town on my finger. I could feel nothing. It was such a completely different ethereal force on this proboscis. That was long. It was almost an inch long all over my fingertip. Could not feel it. I don't have the sensory perception to feel butterfly. And then suddenly it started flapping its wings. And its wing, the blue morph was big. You know, you've got a four-inch you know, wing on there, that thing starts beating its wings gently against the back of my hand. And I cannot explain how soft a butterfly wing is in its life form. It's, it's, it's insanity. So I'm experiencing all of that and looking into the face of these shaman and, and these friends of ours that we had developed in the tribe and the light coming off the blue morpho's wing and, and then the light coming out of their eyes was so similar. It was brighter than anything I can see in my previous human experience. And what I see in those Achuar is their ability to hold light within their vessel. Their ability to shine light through them is similar to the blue morpho's ability to shine light through it. What separates me from the Achuar is fear. Hmm. They have a dreamscape that has kept them out of fear their entire civilization. They never fear anything because they see it before it's coming and they understand it to be part of the journey and they have no judgment on it. They also have no sense of dominion. They, they have never yeah. been in scarcity. And so they know nothing about the fear of, of loss or, or the fear of you know, not enough. And so they never developed this, this decision they needed to own stuff. If you go into their kitchen, there is no refrigerator and there are no cupboards because they simply get up in the morning and they walk out in the rainforest and their family's been here for 40,000 years and they collect what they're going to eat that day. Right. And there's no point in storing anything because they're going to go out and it's going to be there again tomorrow. That's the abundance that we come from. And as we see that spark of self-identity start to come in in the dolphin, in the monkey, humanity split from that incredible emergence of self-identity, the capacity to know self, which came out of the animals and then the mammals and then us, we began to be able to sense self and then we took a hard mistake is we started to believe in other. Not just I am self, I am other. 
And that's different. The Ashwar do not see themselves as other. And so the intelligence and wisdom and connectivity and the lack of sense of fear in them is due to their utter understanding of I am. And in, the, in their language, that is we. They don't actually have an I. We am. We am. And we are here. And this is our home. And they say that over and over again. Welcome to our home. And they say home in such a way to you that you know you are home. There's no judgment on you like you're white guy from crazy ass far distance. It's like, you are home. Welcome home, brother. Let me show you your home. Let me show you the plants that will feed you. Let me show you this. And when I see the light in their eyes, I can tell you something that's come, emerging in my consciousness right now, which is the, the genome of fear and guilt that we developed in our belief of other is exactly why we cannot carry light right now. When we lose the paradigm of fear and guilt, we will start to be able to carry light within us better. We will actually increase the density of our being because light is the thing that creates the highest density within us. The more light energy you have, the more density you carry. When we get into league with this understanding that we are not other, we are the soil of our land, we are the plant that we eat, and we start to care for our home again, the vibrancy of that soil, that plant, and the human that would carry that within them is going to glow brighter. And in that, we're going to increase our density. So how do we lose the genes of fear and guilt? We need an exercise in this 30,000 foot view of grace and a sense that the journey is unfolding exactly as it needed to. We need no judgment on Monsanto and Bayer. We created that anyways. That's us. That's us consumers. Got lazy. We stopped growing gardens. We hated weeding. So we used weed killers. We don't like picking dandelions out of the concrete. So we spray a bunch of chemicals on it. That's us. We created all that. There's no judgment. There's no reason to say us and them or, oh my God, those bad companies. We created all. That's all us. That's our belief in otherness. That's our belief in scarcity. The, the Ochoir, uh, you know, we suddenly got this really fearful call a few days before we were supposed to go down. Like, oh my gosh, there's this Delta variant. Like, do we really want to be the people that carry Delta variant and wipe out the last <laughs> civilization of, of indigenous <laughs> right. wisdom within the Amazon? Like, that's terrible. So we call back and forth. Oh my gosh, is it okay if we come down? What? And they were like, what? No, 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 no. We've been dreaming the end of time for a long time. It has nothing to do with coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just had a laugh. I was like, oh my gosh. So that's how you lose fear. And it turns out coronavirus hammered them last year. They all got sick all through the rainforest. And really? This, is, this really gets away from this whole germ theory thing. Like it's not one person going here and then there. It's literally in the atmosphere, right? It's an atmospheric spread of every pandemic. It binds to carbon particulate. And the Amazon got hammered because of the Australian fires last year. And so right before Corona goes, we have the biggest Australian fires in history. And if you look at the wind patterns, you can see this from NASA imaging, all of that PM 2.5 from those fires that was like a thousand fold what it should be for safe breathing blew right into the rainforest across the ocean. And so the highest concentrations of PM 2.5 ended up in the, in the Ochoar lungs. And I got to see a lot of kids that are suffering down there right now from lung injury. And so I got to see kids you with know, snotty noses and asthma-like bronchitis and all this stuff. There's a lot of suffering going on just because of the crap that we put in the atmosphere from our human intervention and our scarcity and our destruction of soil systems, our destruction of forest, our mismanagement of forests, like all of it is pounding right now on the Ochoa tribe. And yet they only lost six members of their, you know, 20,000 people 
to you know some sort of coronavirus like illness they only lost six and they had no medicine and, and i was like well, what do you do when somebody gets sick oh there's no problem we went out we did had plant medicine ceremony we asked the, the plants which ones would heal us from this condition four plants were identified so we go out and harvest those and we put it into a mix we create a tincture and it helps it cures coronavirus well, are any of you vaccinated? No, no, we, we don't need vaccines. We have our own treatment. We don't want to be vaccinated. It's a technology we don't understand. That's, that's not for us. We know coronavirus is not dangerous to us. Th this, is, this is the genomics of no fear. You're looking at it. it. It's more light. It's more this. And so if you are wondering right now, you know, should I get vaccinated or should I do this or that? Or should I hide in my home or... If you are fearful and full of fear and guilt and you, and you feel so guilted into doing the vaccine, and you know, you don't want it. My body's all telling me I shouldn't have it, but I'm going to do it because I feel guilty and I want to. You are part of this general human condition that we have come to believe in fear and guilt. How did that come to be? Well, it comes back amazingly. If you've heard of the Course of Miracles, dive in there for the entire answer. Once you decide on otherness, once you decide you are separate from all of nature and you're against it and it's against you, you immediately have the fear paradigm set in and it creates a different version of relationship. And the way in which this is described is special relationship versus holy relationship. Holy relationship, you are in that singularity, oneness. There's the, the law of one is present. You know that all things are connected. You know you are nurtured forever. You are loved completely and your whole purpose, your soul is seen. Jeff, you are freaking beautiful. You, are, you showed up here right now, the tipping point to be here, to shed light, to find, to inquisit, to ask questions. You are so beautiful and you are resonating. And I am so sorry that as a human being, burdened with the English language that I cannot communicate to you how beautiful you are. I'm sorry for that because you deserve better because you are an ancient soul that showed up right now and you are dressed in this outfit of human body that, that I have reverence for because it is an incredible vessel for light to vibrate in. Let me tell you, Jeff, that I aim to be a better mirror to you. I want to show you how much light you carry. And I'm going to do that when I end the special relationship and start to go into this holy relationship state. The special relationship is necessitates an agreement between you and I that we're going to believe in death. That's what the Course of Miracles says. We are going to have to sign a contract that says we believe in suffering, pain, disconnect. We're going to agree on two egos that are in conflict. We're going to go ahead and accept death as the end point. And we're going to go through this. And you're like, oh, I don't know. That sounds a little crazy, Zach. And then you go read the typical vows of any, you know, Till death do us part. You're literally saying you have to believe in death to get married. And so if you go through any special relationship, we can have those two certainly in marriage and romantic partners. You don't have to get married before you already, you already signed that special contract between each other when you said, you're my person, whatever it is. And so this ownership thing that we do over each other is because we believe there's a scarcity of love. If you could see how much I love you, if you, if I could see you, you would be so overwhelmed by the amount of love that Skylar would be unable to add an inkling of love to you. At this point, we've talked about living together and I'm going <laughs> right, off and yeah. the crowd's starting to wonder at this point. <laughs> as well as well they should. 
But the reality is when we go into these holy relationships, when we come step back in as humanity into this overwhelming connectedness to the source of energy in the universe that we can call God, we can put any English word on it we want, and it's still stupid. It's just an, an annihilated word, has a ton of baggage. It's just worthless to even bring into the conversation. So let me just call it this gorgeous energy that is the intention and symphony of life pouring out of it. This energy field that we all come from, the Ochoir Sea, they're plugged into, they're dreaming, how do we emerge from this state? And interestingly, if you look at the universe, there's a phenomenon of lightness and darkness, not just within each human being as it lives and depletes and disappears. There's a center of light and darkness in the center of each galaxy. And the center of our galaxy is a black hole. And it is creating the event horizon, the way that our galaxy flattens out into a disk, looks like a large record spinning. That event horizon is spinning for the force of this black hole. And interestingly, since the origin of our galaxy, that black hole has been growing. The darkness has been expanding in our, in our galaxy. And interestingly, just in the last few years, the rate at which the, the black hole is growing has diminished. The growth of the darkness is slowing. And so as I look across this, there's a possibility that when we say we're at a tipping point, and why does this feel different than World War II, or why does this feel different than the Crusades or any of the other horrible things we've done in the name of religion and God? Why does this feel like the ultimate tipping point? It's because this is a tipping point where the darkness is slowing and the light will start to increase in our galaxy. And as you start to think about the way in which matter is organized, there's different energy centers throughout our body. There's eight chakras. And there's some theories out there that our galaxy happens to sit within the, one of the chakra centers of our universe. And so when our chakra starts to light up, might we shift the entire connectivity and consciousness of the entire universe as we know it? That's the spectacular end of the question is how big of a role are we going to play? Could it be universal, galactic? Uh, it could be. I don't know. But certainly the astrophysics is starting to get pretty trippy. And when you start to see indigenous wisdom from 40,000 year history of lineage of dreaming their dream of the future, telling you that the wing of humanity is about to unfold and the feminine will be here to balance the masculine and we will soar flight and straight on. What are we flying to? What light are we going to shed? What light will we participate in in our galaxy? Who will be attracted to us? This is the law of attraction on a whole different scale. Who will we attract in the Milky Way when we go light? When we start to connect back to our soil systems, when we start to agree that our children deserve the highest vibration, most light-filled food on the planet so that they just light up. And then we're going to program a new society that does not believe in fear, does not put guilt as a mechanism for control. We are going to let go of fear and guilt. We're going to let go of all of the special relationships and the belief in death. And we're going to start to believe in a regenerative existence in which every generation sees more life, more adaptation, more biodiversity, because that's what's happened for 4 billion years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is really at the core of change, which is, uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, specific things around healthcare or agriculture or whatever. But what we're talking about now is, is an ideological substrate that undergirds all of those structures and systems that we've created 
And that, as you said, has created a, um, a, a way of being that others that always creates dominion. And certainly we see that in the Judeo-Christian traditions that, you know, gave us this sort of monarchical, um, hierarchical structure, very patriarchal structure where, you know, here's God and here's man and now here's nature and go tame it. And we think about this idea of nature as wild and wild is chaotic. And so in our um, inherited role of creating order, we place everything into grids and systems to dewild something. And so, you know, you, all you can look at, you know, city structures, but also you can look at a farm where we've taken uh, the livestock and removed it from the crop fields. And we've created these rank on rank, you know, perfectly tilled rows of crops. But where has that gotten us into kind of this, you know, monoculture of disease? And so it's really this shift of being able to not only see ourselves as not other and not only see ourselves as nature, but almost to eliminate the entire concept of subject and object in the framework of how we think. And this is, uh, this is the subject of a lot of meditation, Zogen meditation, that, it's, that basically it, its end goal is non-duality, essentially. That, and it sounds like these people that you spend time with in the Amazon, they don't, I mean, they might be animists or whatever. They might see themselves as inherently part of nature, but it also sounds like they exist in a way where there is, they, that their experience of consciousness of the experience of what it is like to be them does not have a subject and an object. It is actually integrated experience, integrated consciousness. And as a meditator, I get small glimpses of that just from time to time on a very good day <laughs> where there is not Zach and there is not Megan and Ruby and this, you know, cup of tea. There is only the world. And there is that the experience of phenomenon which is my general experience of being alive, of that I have these five senses that are enhanced by the technology of science to perceive phenomenon in the world. I also appear to be able to perceive emotions and, and thoughts and feelings that well up inside me. But for this brief moment, for this glimpse, there is no separation between the phenomenon and my ability to perceive it. It is one integrated consciousness. And it's, so when you step into that place, what begins to disappear is any, not only any sense of fear or guilt, but any inkling of need. And so what often girds our sense of individual kind of identity is that I have labeled everything in the world outside me. And inherent to that process, I've also labeled myself. And I exist in competition with it. And so 
in order to fulfill my own self-esteem and value myself, I start to judge myself through the eyes of others or what I have or what can I accrue or my societal positions and all these things. And this just starts to build up endless amounts of need. And it's my identification with that part of myself, which is the ego, which rips me away from what my true essence is, which is literally just integrated consciousness. And we see this integrated consciousness play out in biology because during this hour and a half that we've sat across from each other, how much genomic material have we exchanged? Well, a ton. And, and microbiome. And, right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it is, but these shifts aren't simple. And we may be at this crossroads or inflection point or tipping point against our will somehow, you know, um, against the ego, for sure. Or certainly against the ego. Ego is clinging on. <laughs> yeah. We want to be separate. We want to be different. We want to be other. Yeah. We, we the ego desperately wants all of that, right? That's because right. Because as soon as you give way to that, something greater can take foot, but something dies. Yeah. And because we have committed to a contract of believing in death, the ego's got its foothold. And so until we collectively let go of our belief of death and start to step into a life vibrating without the genetics of fear and guilt we will not carry enough light to make the transition but if we do when we do it's instantaneous so while it seems complicated right it is ludicrously simple because a butterfly coming out of the cocoon never thinks about coming out of the cocoon it just emerges and so the metamorphosis that's about to happen is not going to take a volitional act it's going to be one of surrender if we let go completely and let the mush happen inside the cocoon, the reorganization of that matter that we call human will emerge with something beautiful, two wings out, and we will fly straight. Yes. And that change is very, very possible. It's right there at the tip. In fact, you know, if you come from the Christian faith, you might have experienced that as Christ consciousness. If you come from... Uh, if you're a Hindu, then you may have experienced a state of Brahman, which you feel, uh, which feels as if you are simply a modification of a greater unified self. Um, if you are a Buddhist, you might have experienced that within the context of nirvana. <sighs> nirvana literally means blowing out, <sighs> just letting go. And, you know, in my own experience as some kind of mutt, slash secular humanist, I can experience moments of complete integrated consciousness. Um, but the, but what now what we're talking about is instantiating that at a global universal level. And I think this is the fascinating part of what it is to be alive in this moment is to be at this tipping point. Somebody asked me earlier today, how are you doing? And I said, for the first time, I, I said, I'm an ecstatic heartbreak. I had never put those two words together, but it's definitely been my week. 
Um, I am ecstatic over this realization of my opportunity to plug back into a, a holy relationship for ev with everything that we would call nature, God, energy, the unification. I have the ability to have a primary and inclusive relationship in which all of the beauty of that nature inspires me to the greatest experience of love. And it will seep out of my pores such that every hug I give will infuse that person with just this overwhelming sense of abundance because I'm in that holy relationship state. That is an ecstatic freaking state to be in. And simultaneously, I am in the, some of the most severe heartbreak I've ever been in because it's forcing me to let go of relationships with everything. I had a special relationship with my jobs, the companies I've created. I've had a special relationship with the government I like to rail at. I have a special relationship with the my favorite matcha tea. I have a special relationship <laughs> literally with every freaking thing around me. And when I'm going to go vertical completely, I'm going to have to let go of all of those relationships that demanded of me that I believed in death, suffering, pain. The last thing that happens is we start to go vertical is we, we have to let go of judgment. It's the last step. You mentioned earlier that nature has a lot of forgiveness. And before that, I had used the word grace. And we accidentally <laughs> put those similar. Yeah. Forgiveness suggests that there was a sin to be forgiven. And my increasing suspicion is that Mother Earth has never seen a sin. She sees a stumbling toddler of a species on her surface, making a freaking mess of things. But you've never damned your toddler for falling over again. And she sees the struggling bird with one wing out. And she's like, this is a pathetic scene. But there's another wing and the creature's only 200,000 years old. It's just a brief blip in time. This creature could just unfurl that freaking wing and it's going to fly. I don't think there's a forgiveness needed from nature. If she would forgive us or not need the forgiveness, then how much more grace should we turn on one another? When are we going to stop pretending like your thoughts are different than my thoughts? When are we going to stop pretending that your political position is different than my political position? Ultimately, we want representation at every level. We want to be seen. We want a government that would see us as a population and if needed as an individual. We want to see economic systems that see us as a respected, reverent population, or if needed, an individual. We want all the same things. Everybody wants to, to escape, ultimately, this belief in scarcity. And so if that's the path, if we need everything, if we need the darkness, if we need the Bayer Monsanto, we need the glyphosate to break down our self-identity, we need the depletion of all things so that our science can finally realize what we actually are because we couldn't handle the invisible message. We needed the physical, <laughs> obvious message. <laughs> Y'all are connected. You're right. dying because you wake up every morning and try to figure out what to kill. If you keep doing that, you will die. If we're finally coming to this revelation because we had to, we had to make this existential, invisible equation of life visible to ourselves. That's why we've done what we did. That's why we created the otherness than the special relationships for this existential lesson to be learned that we were loved the whole time on a level that our human brains could not fathom. Only the human experience, the sensation of being in a time continuum that allows for sensory to occur in the first place. It's why we picked this journey. Why do ancient souls leap into temporal bodies so that we can find time? 
because there's something beautiful that time allows for is the sense of transit, the sense of transformation, the sense of metaphors. If you have no time, there is no sense of metamorphosis. We're in a temporal moment to metamorph and we are so glad to be in it. And so if we let go of the judgment on one another, I know there are deep scars and I know I've had an easy life. I know that I am less traumatized than the vast majority of people on this planet in this lifetime. But this soul has signed up for many journeys and has walked many tragic pathways. I, we are all on a many soul journey and we need to come to grace over each other. You know, we've all walked those paths at some point. We've all been the underdog at some point. We have been downtrodden and we are trying to bring that collective experience, intelligence, wisdom, and ultimately surrender to become something beautiful. And it's that temporal metamorphosis that the whole universe is paying attention to right now. Because if that means it tips the light a little bit, that could change everything. Yeah. There is something beautiful. There is beauty in impermanence. There's a, a grace in things falling apart, you know? Um, that, you know, our physical bodies have been so often seen, at least in kind of religious traditions, as base. And that we're always trying to sublimate um, and uh, our physical corporeal forms um, to reach something eternal, something immutable, which is spirit. That there is this this cross of like this vertical, and then there's this transom, you know, of of the horizontal is like we're still earthbound, confined to these temporally to these ephemeral bodies. But there is something beautiful in my body and the physical world that is falling apart. And I, uh, I mean, part of, of course coming into consciousness is the recognition of that impermanence. And, you know, we're so, our identities, individually at least, are so girded by this sense of physical and psychological continuity that you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to more or less have the same body and you're going to have the same suitcase with the same clothes and you're going to have more or less the same thoughts. And that is a, an illusion that you are... That, but it keeps you in a, it keeps you connected to a sense of identity, which feels very useful day to day. It connects you to the contents of consciousness and not really consciousness itself. Um, and, uh, but I think once we come to terms that there really isn't any stable, reliable self per se, that there is, only this experience of being human moment to moment that is completely transitory. And it's a big relief, you know, if we can inhabit that space. Um, and, you know, as I contemplate what the next iteration will be, um, you know, I do think about it often in those terms. Will we understand 
um, the experience of being alive in regular old space-time terms of like, here I am in this particular moment with you. I can reach up. I can reach to the side. I can reach forward. I can reach backwards. I am in three-dimensional time space. And this moment has happened. And then again, this moment. And then again, this moment. And I'm stacking moments up on top of each other like craft cheese singles. <laughs> and then that's the contents of my life. <laughs> but there is oftentimes, you know, you hear of like the like God's uh, view of time or uh, the block universe, which is that nothing that this notion of three dimensional space time is just very special and very human um, and very confining um, that we are thinking in this absolutely specific kind of linear fashion. And we're absolutely convinced that we're individuals traveling through this linear space-time continuum. And that's all, and through stages of ephemerality, and that's all life is. But it is just, it's astounding and fascinating to think beyond what we can physically know at this time, you know? And, and you always push the limit on. <laughs> and what that might be <laughs> well there's examples that we can point to that you know are in your experience even if you can't remember them but um you were a very sentient and very sensitive sensory neural complex in the womb and in the womb you experienced life um beautifully you could hear your mother's heartbeat all day all night always it was right there boom, 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 boom. and that became the rhythm of your life you could hear your mother's heartbeat. You could feel the vibration of her, her aorta just behind the womb, pumping, pounding gently, just a percussion. If you want to put a baby to sleep, you pound their back gently at the same pace of your own aorta. Find your heart rate and, and, and then tap out that on their back gently. Give them the percussion of the womb. And you perceived talk. You could hear voices. You know your mother's voice. You knew your father's voice through the wall of the womb. You could hear it. It is muffled and beautiful. It's like when you fall asleep so good as a kid, it's when you can hear that muffled voices downstairs. It's because that's what it sounded like in the womb. You're, re you're revisiting the womb when you're falling asleep and you can hear the muffled voices. And you could see. And there was your mom would walk outside and suddenly there was this red hue coming through her belly. You could see it. You see light. You could see shadows. You hear the slam of a door. You hear the cars that start up drive all the way to the grocery store. You have a sensory experience when she smells something because her olfactory sense sets off a neural cascade in your brain. When she feels a surge of love for somebody around her, you feel the endorphin rush of one human loving another. You perceived such beauty in the womb. And then you came into this cataclysmic moment where all things crushed you. And you were crushed down into this dark tunnel. And there was so much pressure that you thought, for sure, I'm not going to survive. This is, the, this is my end point. And then suddenly, you, all of the pressure and pain releases. And you are in a space that is so blindingly beautiful. Colors of every variety are hitting your retina. And you don't have a neural pathway for any of that. So it's just a cacophony of light. And you are hearing sounds crisp like never heard before. And you are in a reality that you could not have imagined moments before this. 
And then as you start to age, you start to be taught to, to find the other. And suddenly you're not connected to anything, blah, blah, blah. You find the other, you develop all these special relationships. You agree there's death. But even in that special relationship, there's so much beauty. Of all of us who have died in special relationships with the contract of death and not understanding the immortality of oneness, in that, look at the beauty that emerges as you start to lose the senses. We would not have a Monet if there had been good eyeglasses at the time. The Impressionists needed to lose their eyesight so that they would start to see and perceive light differently and they would paint differently. And you can see as his vision goes over the course of his career, we get more and more spectacular portrayals of light because his vision is failing. What if we see more light when we're nearly blind? What does that mean about our perceptive quality? What does it mean when we're losing our hearing as our elderly and we're shoving all these, you know, devices into their ears so they can amplify the sound what would they perceive through if not their ear would they start to touch our faces more i want my face touched more by my elders because they cannot see me well and they cannot hear me and they would touch my face and say oh zach hello how are you i want to be touched by my elders i want their fingers to follow the paths of my wrinkles as they form and and realize with joy that i'm i'm experiencing wisdom developing in my body this experiential database i'm getting there so then all of a sudden that beautiful elder who's starting to perceive just beauty around them and i love it when the, an elder gives up fear and guilt they have no guilt over telling the most ridiculous dirty joke they can think of you know you got the 90 year old woman sitting on the table just telling the nastiest sex joke she can think of and it's just cracking her up she can hardly get the joke out because yeah. she's in such bliss right and this person is in this vibrant state of i'm human and i i did the temporal journey and then suddenly heart attack and she's rushed into this dark ambulance and there's pressure on her chest and she's collapsing and there's this deep tunnel of darkness and she's unconscious and we're shocking her and pounding on her chest and pushing epinephrine in her vein and she's disappearing no matter what and then they rushed into the bang the doors open to the er and they proclaim her dead and at that moment she emerges into this brightness light that she could not have imagined moments before and she's dazzled by an eternal singularity that she's just stepped into and she experiences i am here i am accepted i am loved on levels i could not perceive with my feeble human perceptions and i remember now where i come from and yes. i am home yes. and i am here yes william blake has this wonderful poem uh, we are led to believe a lie when we see with and not through the eye that was born in a night just to perish in a night while the soul slept bathed in beams of light <laughs> and how do you do that <laughs> freaking impressive and that's beautiful this is a beautiful section of a poem um can you just put that at the beginning of the podcast so nobody has to listen to this whole <laughs> two-hour conversation yeah well it stayed with me obviously because it's prescient but you said a word remember Oftentimes, people think that the antonym, the opposite of remember, is forget. But it's actually dismember. Is that we go through this life dismembered. Yeah. We're cut up. And then we have this moment of coming back together, of remembering, right? It's of recollecting 
of coming back to wholeness. I mean, that description of what it's like to be in utero. Oh, so beautiful, Zach. And, uh, and that's what I want to remember, <laughs> to be free that way. There was complete singularity at that moment. You knew who you were. You knew where you came from. There was no confusion. It took an enormous amount of programming to make you believe that you were separate from all, all things. And it's taken us tens of thousands of years of civilization to perfect the tools of fear and guilt to convince you that you're not enough. And that there is an utter state of insufficiency of you know, this desperate lack. We had to train you into that belief. And uh, our media has become the ultimate powerhouse here with a global media delivered through the palms of our hands. We now have control over every mind and heart and we know how to wield fear and guilt on a scale and with a, with a samurai-like sharpness like no other. And so we are destroying the hearts and minds of our children and ourselves with fear and guilt. So when somebody bangs on a drum and says there's a pandemic that's going to hurt you, shake that stuff off. Okay, what's our imbalance? What's, what's the thing that we need to come back into alignment with? That's the question. There's nothing leaping out of nature to kill you. You wouldn't have been here if nature was against you, not for one iota. Nature is, is actually expressing you. You are the dream of Mother Nature. You are her, her child of the mind. She has thought you up and you are here. We are not against her and she is not against us. And so we need to let go of that fear. And when somebody says you need to put your life at risk for the theoretical protection of another, you need to know that that person has no idea what life actually comes from or where life is going. To even put a scenario like that is impossible. There's no way that I'm the threat to another human being by simply being in my native state. There's no way. I am home, people. I am home. And I am remembering what it feels like to be home. And I'm becoming much more aware of the light that I'm able to transmit through this vessel. And I am starting to enjoy life. I made it a toil. All those years, 100 hours a week in the hospitals, I, I ran shifts 40 hours without. I, I was awake for 40 hours working. That's the kind of crap that I was thought that I needed to do to prove myself or to get enough knowledge to justify my existence here. It was a death march of who I was. And that person is dying. And this year, in the midst of what has been called a pandemic, I'm rebirthing because I'm starting to let go of the former beliefs and convictions and you know, a sense of everything that preceded it. And I'm finding the need to break down everything. I got to take down old websites. I got to take down who I thought I was. I gotta, I, I'm not any of the things that any of you think I might be. I am not that person. That was a, a beautiful line from scripture that I love. We are seeing through the glass darkly. That's, this, that's the description from the Greek, you know. Actually, I think that's Hebrew. I think that's, um, I think that's uh, Old Testament Hebrew there. We are seeing through the glass darkly. 
picture stained glass and you're back in that womb and you can see the Plato's shadows on the cave wall there, you know, behind there. And you're seeing a semblance of life, a semblance of reality. And if you cling to that and make all kinds of, you know, decisions about what's categorically right and wrong, because you can see the shadows through the glass darkly, you are making a grave mistake about who, who you are. So you have seen me through the glass darkly. And I can promise you there's something much more beautiful than I've learned to reveal yet, but I am working on it. I am tearing down the walls and I want you to be absolutely blessed by this shiny mirror that I am next time you see me. So all you can see is the beauty of Jeff because I am you, you are me. We are human. We are home. Hmm. Zach Bush, thank you for radiating your light and helping us turn towards the light, not just see its shadows. So I love being with you. You push me to my utter limits and beyond. And I guarantee uh, I'm not the only one that's going to leave this podcast um, with a lot to contemplate and a lot to converse around and be in dynamic connection with. So thank you. Appreciate you. Much love to you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Zach Bush. To learn more about Zach Bush's new commune course and experience a lesson for free, go to onecommune.com slash Zach Bush and feel free to drop me a line anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I would like to thank the people that make this show possible. Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Kamali Martin, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.